Hey everyone, we hope you're having a great week. My name is Eric Johnson, and along with my wife Candace, we are the lead pastors of Studio. We are based in Greenville, South Carolina, and we just want to take a moment and say hello and say thanks for listening to this podcast. So with that, let's get right to it. Did you know that the average human being makes over 35,000 decisions every day? Like right now, your brain is making decisions. All of you are making the decision, do I want to listen to this guy? (laughs) And some of you are thinking, is it cold in here? Should I put my jacket on? Should I go to the bathroom? I mean, you're making 35,000 decisions every day. And what's even more interesting is they say that you make around 227 on average decisions a day about food, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much when you're making 35,000 decisions a day. Some of you are thinking about food right now. You're thinking about where you're gonna go after this, but you're making that many decisions. So if you're awake on average 16 hours a day, you're making over 2,100 decisions every hour. If you're wondering why you're tired at night because your brain is working really hard, That little computer up there, that soft tissue computer is not lazy, it's there just trying to figure things out. It's pretty dynamic and it is said that Einstein bought numerous of the same outfit, just numerous, filled a closet with a bunch of the same outfit. And they say his reasoning was because he didn't want to have to waste any decision on what he was going to wear that day. So this whole thing of making decisions, I don't know if you remember this pandemic that we just had, but something that I met was decision fatigue. Uh, decision fatigue and I became not best friends, we became enemies, but it was in my face every day. And Candace and I were leading a large church at the time and we were having to make decisions that no one should ever have to make. And you would pivot 700 employees and you're trying to figure out how to get 12,000 people informed about the new guideline that came out. And so you, you PR in the whole thing and you're working. I mean, some of our staff are like, man, I get some time off. I'm like, you're fired because I am working so hard right now. I didn't say that, but that's what I felt like saying. I get to be at home and do all this beautiful stuff to my house. I'm like, man, it must be nice being in the position that you're in. But that wasn't in luxury for us. And so we're making decisions. And so you roll out this whole PR. And, and then all of a sudden, the governor changes his mind and says, we're doing this instead. And then you got to pivot. And that just became and this normal thing. And decision fatigue became very real. And I know many of you were in this positions in life where you just got tired of making decisions. Maybe you're tired right now of making decisions. You just want someone else to make the decision for you. But what's fascinating to me about humans, when we say yes to Jesus, when we genuinely say, Jesus, I want you to be my king, something happens inside each and every person that becomes a believer or a follower of Jesus. It wasn't there before, but it's there right after. It's really remarkable when you think about it. And it's this idea, this reality of the desire to plead Jesus is evident. I think that's one of the sure signs of when you have become a believer, a follower of Jesus, is when you wake up with this desire and this dream like, what can I do to please God? 
and the day before, you didn't even know if God existed or not, but then you said yes to him, and you're like, man, what can I do? I, I, should, I should drop out of school. I should, should I go to Africa? Should I, I mean, this whole desire, should I quit this job and give my life to this? And we're, what is that? It's, it's what happened when Jesus showed up in your life. It turns on something in you that you didn't know was there. Maybe you aimed it elsewhere, but all of a sudden, now you just want to please him. And some of you remember that day. Some of you are in that space. And honestly, it's not something that comes alive and it's meant to go away. It's actually there all the time. I think another way to look at that reality is if you don't have a desire to please Jesus, the question is, are you still following him? And that's not a, a shame statement. That's just a way to take a temperature of your heart. The moment I stop wanting to serve and love my wife will give me a really good idea of where I'm at in my relationship with my wife. So this idea of like serving Jesus, like thinking about what can I do to love him well? What can I do to serve him well? What can I do to sacrifice things in my life for him? And when that stays evident, I believe it is a healthy sign of where you're at in your relationship, where you're at in your intimacy, where you're at in your proximity to Jesus. So this whole thing of decision-making, and I don't know if you spend much time on this, but making decisions is, is interesting. We make 35000 on average every day. Uh, and have you noticed that in a lot of major decisions in life, it's like God goes on mute. It's like you hear him talking, and then when it's time to make a major decision, he doesn't talk anymore. What's up with that? Have you ever wondered this? Like, why, why, why is this? And, and it's a wrestle, it's a battle. It's probably one of the most complex theological questions theologians have been wrestling with from the moment Jesus showed up. We love free will. I don't know about you, but if you haven't thought about free will, you should be really thankful for free will. We love free will because we get to do what we want. We get to choose. The only thing in your existence that God doesn't own is your choice. But it's funny. We love free will. We feel like we deserve it. And we know God gave it to us. But when it comes to decision time, essentially, we don't want free will anymore. Like, God, can you just make that decision for me? Just tell me what to do. Some of you are in a space right now, you're trying to figure out what your next step is. You're trying to figure out what, what should I do? And it's like, God, can we put free will on pause and you just lay it out for me? Then I'll make a decision and then put free will back on. It doesn't work that way. As, as nice as that sounds, it just doesn't work that way. You have free will. So now we're stuck with this dilemma. How do you know what you're supposed to do? How do you know what you're supposed to do in this moment, in this moment, in this moment? And this is, this is the dilemma of being a follower of Jesus with free will, with this deep desire to please him. So what justifies the will of God in our life? Like, how do you know when you're following the will of God? Is it when life is good? So that would imply that when life isn't good, you're not in the will of God. So for some of us, our definition of the will of God means when life is good. So all your decisions will get you to that space where life is good. So any decision that leads you down a hard path or a hard scenario or a confrontation, you'll avoid 
Because like, that's not the will of God for my life. The will of God for my life is the beaches, the sandy beaches of heaven with turquoise blue water and no shoes on. And I'm just enjoying the goodness of God. If that's your definition of the will of God, then I will tell you how you'll make every decision in life. So we can have a one-dimension understanding of the will of God, or we can have a many-dimension understanding of the will of God. And it's funny, each culture and each circle of community, each, each background will determine our own definition of the will of God. So how do we know? Has anybody ever thought about this? Some of you have, and you haven't thought about it for a while on purpose. You're like, I don't, it's just too much. You know, what job should I take? Should I take that job or that job? And it's interesting because when we approach these decisions, usually what happens is when, which one's right and which one's wrong? And so we're asking God, we're asking our friends, our spouses, our, our community, we're saying, which one should I do? What we're essentially saying is, what's the wrong decision? And usually if you think through a black and white or right and wrong paradigm, it really does reveal your dimension of understanding of a father. Do I do this with my business or do I do this with my business? How many kids should we have? A lot of you in here know God wants you to have lots of kids. <laughs> it's evidenced by the sheer volume in here in the last 45 minutes. Does God know the future? Or does God know the futures? You see, this is the dilemma. Welcome to being human being on earth. And I've said yes to the almighty God. This isn't, this isn't, I'm not sharing this to make it morbid or sad or like paralyze you. I believe there's something in here that we can extrapolate to actually liberate us. Have you ever, have you ever like gone into a, a building and you go to push the door and it won't open? You're like, can't push it up. Oh, it's pull. And you pull instead. Sometimes decisions are like that. You're working so hard, like, oh, I'm supposed to do the other one. The other, I'm supposed to pull it, not push it. And that's just life. It's just, it's just what we get to live with and get to decide. In Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says this, A man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Where's free will in that? Is it like God says, here's the paintbrush. Just start painting. And we don't know, he's actually out our hand and he's painting a picture for us to give us the illusion that we're painting the painting. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says this, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The word will in most of the scriptures I'm reading today actually have to do with desires and wishes. So another way to say that this is what God desires and this is what God wishes. In Romans 12 too, this is a very well-known one in this topic. It said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. We find Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 6, he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So the idea that there's a will out there somewhere that is meant to be demonstrated and displayed here. Even in Matthew 26, verse 39, Jesus is going to the cross, and he said this, like he came to earth to do this very thing, and he said this to God. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So even Jesus, this is the human part of him that we need to give some respect to. Even knowing that this was what his destiny was for all of mankind, he even wrestled like, God, is this really your will? So the question is, isn't if there's a will of God, the question is, what is the will of God? A long time ago, this was Candace and I were a lot younger than we are now. We were, at the time, we were on staff at Bethel. We had just got married. We had been there for a couple of years. And we were currently running the mission department as well as we were, as well as we were helping the youth department out. And so we were kind of multifaceted and we took like three to five mission trips a year. And it was back in the late 90s, 1997 to like 1999, last century, basically. <laughs> and in one summer, have you ever noticed like decisions, sometimes there's no opportunity, then all at once they all show up. Uh, it would be great if there was only one opportunity. That just makes life so much easier, but that just doesn't seem to be the way it is. Like, here's five. <laughs> and this particular summer, in one summer, in a span of a couple months, we had a bunch of opportunities. One was to go to Mexico to work at an orphanage. Or if you were here a couple weeks ago, my good friend Gina and Jimmy, it was their ministry, and they invited us to come down to work with them. And we were a bunch of young 20-year-olds. We're like, wow, that'd be kind of cool. We've always, we always loved going to Mexico, love culture, love nations. And then a pastor and a missionary in Barcelona, or I'm sorry, in Spain, invited us to plant a church in Barcelona, Spain, which sounds so exotic and cool. We're like, oh, that's got to be it. That's so got to be it. And then the other option was the pastor in Weaverville, which is where I spent my entire childhood, in a church called Mountain Chapel, which is the church my parents pastored as I grew up. They called us up and said, would you guys come up and be in youth pastors? And I was like, heck no. <laughs> that is not the will of God for my life. <laughs> Clearly not. I am not going back to that place. Now, I love Weaverville. So what, I just like, I'm not going back there. I've been there, done that. Got the t-shirt and a lot of stories. <laughs> and so Kenneth and I entered into this season of just crying out, praying to God. We fasted. We talked to everybody that had any ear for what God's voice was. I mean... You know, just, you know, you talked, hey, can you? And we did that for like a couple months and nothing made it clear. It made it more ambiguous. It made it more confusing. It made it more like, I don't even know what I am anymore. Am I even, I mean, it was just so much of that. And so at the end of that long process, we said, let's do Weaverville, which Candace was so excited about it. I was so not excited about it. <laughs> And so we moved to Weaverville. And the first two years was horrible for me. Candace was like living in heaven for the, I mean, and she was kicking my butt every week. You need to get your act together. You need to get your attitude together. And I'm like, I told you I didn't want to move back here. <laughs> She's like, this is the best place on planet Earth. I said, it so is not the best place on planet Earth. We never had that dialogue, but that's what it felt like. After about two and a half years, I finally had an attitude adjustment. And it wasn't like I wasn't trying. It was just really hard. In about two and a half years, this other decision came, an opportunity came. It was only one. 
And I'm like, oh, this is so the Lord. Get me out of here. And Karen's like, this is not what we're supposed to do. I'm like, this is so what we're supposed to do. And it really, because I want it out. So we turned it down. We turned it down and we stayed. And the next three and a half, four years of, my, of our life, but specifically for me, were some of the best three or four years of just growing up. And people ask, like, did God tell you to go to Weaverville? He never did. Yeah. At least for me. So we have to keep in, keep in mind when we talk about the will of God, if God makes every decision for you, then you'll barely have anything to give an account for at the end of your life. I actually can't go that much longer. I've got a whole thing, so, because it's, it's actually about time to wrap this up. So if you happen to be here next gathering, you'll get the rest of this, and I'll, I'm going to try to land this. Because it's a can of worms. If I open this can of worms, it's... The kid, the kid will be frustrated. There are three dimensions in relationship with God that you'll find in Scripture. Slave, servant, and friend. Write this down. Slave, servant, and friend. Paul talked about slave. He said, you're a slave to Christ. What's that mean? When you're a slave, you have no will. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you want to do. It means nothing when you're a slave. And Paul said, we're a slave to Christ. This is a strong statement. So this whole like kind of lackadaisical relational approach to Jesus is like, ah, you know, if I got time, I'll do it. Paul's like, that is almost antichrist. You're a slave. You're a bondservant to Jesus. Like you're, everything belongs to him. And then you get over into John chapter 14, 15, and 16. There's another dialogue with Jesus and his disciples. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's not talking to just every human being. He's talking to 12 men that, have been fought, that literally gave up everything to follow him. And this is towards the end of their time together before Jesus goes to the cross. And there's this moment in this conversation. It's really fascinating. It's in John 15 and 16 primarily, but 14 gets you there. And in John 15, Jesus says, you are no longer servant, but you're my friend. Some of you read that passage. And right after that, one of the disciples go, I now understand what you're talking about. But what we don't see in the English translation, what the Greek is doing in the background is up until that point, there's a certain Greek structure of language that were dark saying, riddles or hidden sayings. So Jesus was speaking in an actual language that wasn't completely revealing. It was veiled. Which it speaks volume to these men that said yes to him. They were following a man and they had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. We're like We background check the heck out of people before we even shake their hand. We're like, no, I can't trust you. I don't know anything about you. And here we have the disciples like, what's he talking about? I have no idea what he's talking about right now. And then at this point, the end of their time together, Jesus says, I no longer call you servant. I call you friend. And when you look at the structure of the Greek language, all of a sudden the Greek language turns from veiled saying to blunt sayings. And that's why they go, now we understand you. 
What's the difference between slave, servant, and friend? I'm going to end on this. I'm going to crash land it, and I apologize. Slave is you have no will. Your desires and wishes are irrelevant. Servant is a little bit different. Servant is your will, desires, and your wishes are secondary. You can have them, but they're not important. They're not completely act out of your essence of who you are as a human being. They can reside. They can live. And in some cases, you can make them known. But at the end of the day, whatever the master wants, you do. But when you step into a realm of friendship, your desires, your wishes, your will actually become a part of the equation. Now, God is still God. He is still your master. He is still boss. But he actually wants to know what you're dreaming about, what your wishes are, what your desires are. Now, you might ask me, so how many years do I be a slave? And at what point do I graduate to servanthood? And then how long do I live there? And then at what point do I become a friend? There is no answer for that. But what I can tell you, in order to be a true friend, you have to learn how to be a slave. Think about your own life right now. There are people in your life, hopefully, that at a call, if you call them and say, I need you right now, hopefully you have at least one person in life, they will drop everything, fly across the earth just to come to you. That's essentially a slave. Someone's like, my, all my life, my wishes, my desires are done. Eric is the most important thing in my life right now. You see, we think friendships don't require servanthood and some realm of being a slave. But the best friends that you have in your life may not even be family members. It may not be a brother or a sister. It'll be someone else. And they know how to be good friends to you because they know how to serve you well. Not because you, there's no reciprocity in it. It's just they know how to do it. They know how to be slave and a servant. So I want you to understand this dimension when we're talking about the will of God. There are the most introductory level of decision making is he tells you what to do. Now you have to choose to obey him or disobey him. That is the base level of relationship with God. If you think that's the pinnacle, it's not. It's the entry level. Just tell me what to do with my life and I'll do it. And God said, all right, I want you X, Y, Z. From there, it's your decision. It's a decision of I'm going to obey or I'm going to somewhat obey or I'm not going to obey. But when God goes on mute, what do you do? That's a different dimension of relationship. Now, I know people would come up to me afterwards and say, how long do I wait? I have no answer for that either. <laughs> for some of you, it's a day. For some of you, it's a year. For some of you, it's two months. I don't know. There's no equation to this thing. So if you're looking for a formula, there is none. So what am I trying to get a point, my point across today? When it comes to the will of God in decision-making, Many of us are looking for the result of God, but God is saying, I want to be in proximity to you. I want you. I want you. And the closer in proximity, my wife and I are coming up on a 26-year wedding anniversary. She can give me a look, and I know what she's thinking. She can just give me... I mean, I don't even have to look at her sometimes. I can feel <laughs> this vibe. I can come into the house. I'm like, I know how my wife is doing right now. What is that? It's proximity. 
So I want to challenge you. I'm, gonna land, I t- I'm trying to land this thing hard. I, t- I want you to put some thoughts in your head. Sometimes the will of God is not a right or wrong decision. In fact, I would propose most of the time it's not. It's actually an invitation to be in proximity, to be in intimate relationship with him, and you learn to dance together. Why don't you stand? Thanks for listening, and we hope this talk benefits you in every way possible. For more information about Studio, you can go to studiogreenville.com or go to Instagram and look for studio.greenville. We would also love it if you would leave a review and hit those five stars. Other than that, have a great week, and we'll see you soon.